This educational podcast is sponsored by Stemline Therapeutics, a Menorini Group company. For more information on BPDCN, please visit bpdcninfo.com or get the latest updates on Twitter at bpdcninfo. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So today we have a person that I've gotten to know for quite a while now that's just, just an amazing guy. It's, it's Dr. Whitney High, who's Professor of Dermatology and Pathology at the University of Colorado in the Denver area. Um, this is a guy that is, is great as a clinical dermatologist pathologist. He's a lawyer, has a legal degree, though I don't think he practices law, right? Um, he can he can mention that if he'd like. He is a tropical disease expert, and he's an engineer. And, and this was a guy who told me that when he was in high school, you know, he was just a guy that, you know, was out with his friends drinking beer, didn't know what he wanted to do, and he had an epiphany. And look at him today. Whitney, it's great to see you today. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So we're going to tap your brain about a disease state, which reading more about, hearing more about, because it shows up so often, 80 to 90% of the time, it shows up in dermatology offices, not yet diagnosed. And dermatologists, even though it's an uncommon condition, you can address that, are in a great position to actually make the diagnosis. And now that there's therapies that can improve the prognosis, it's very important. So it's blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm. So what can you tell me about it just from the standpoint of the name of it? What does plasmacytoid dendritic cell have to do with it? What does blastic have to do with it? So elucidate me. Yeah, it's a mouthful to say. I, I get it wrong about half the time, blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm. BPDCN uh, used to be when I started out in dermatology it was called hematodermic neoplasm, and hematodermic neoplasm was shorter and 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 uh, somewhat easier to remember that it involved the skin and the blood. But uh, BPDCN is a highly aggressive, uh, historically very difficult to diagnose. Uh, and fatal malignancy. Uh, it's a very has a very very poor prognosis until recently, and it's something that dermatologists need to know about. But it's very challenging to diagnose, both in the skin and under the microscope. And as you mentioned, it involves the skin uh, a very significant amount of time, eighty to ninety percent of cases. So my understanding is the the name blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm as its own entity was only classified that way around 2008 by the World Health Organization or, you know, different groups that classify these. And it was mixed in with other diagnoses. So it wasn't differentiated from some other type of acute leukemia, for example, or myeloid leukemia, or whatever the case may be. So may there actually be more cases than we have thought now that we can differentiate this? Yes, I think you're probably right. You know, like I said, it used to be called when I was a young man, hematodermic neoplasm and uh, blastic plasmacytoid means it, you know, has young precursors of plasmacytoid or plasma cell like dendritic cells. And it, it's something that's challenging to understand uh, in dermatology because that's not really where our focus is. And it's something that's, you know, a highly aggressive malignancy. 
that's de derived from precursors of blastic cells or plasmacytoidendritic cells. And I, I think it's something that is only starting to be appreciated in, in, in dermatology and in, and in medicine in general. I, I've seen estimates that it's around 1,000 to 1,500 cases in the United States and Europe annually, but you're probably right. Since we don't have a great appreciation for it, there may be more cases than that out there. So I'm thinking about it from my standpoint. You know, I've talked to Whitney High. He's smartened me up on on this diagnosis. So what am I expecting to potentially see as a dermatologist in the course of a clinic day that might have me thinking not just maybe that there's some sort of leukemic infiltrate or leukemia acutus or whatever, but that this may specifically be the case. So what does it look like? Well, it, it can be pretty protean in its in its manifestations, but uh, first, some of the historical information. Uh, it's more common in men than women. It's more common in people in their 60s and older than any other age. I believe it's been described clear down into pediatrics, eight eight month olds, things like that. But it's certainly, you know, its wheelhouse of. Uh, of disease is probably in the in the 60s in men and very often in people that have already had some type of uh, hematologic malignancy or precursor uh, myelodysplastic syndrome those types of things so I think that's where you start to kind of pick up on some of these cases is older men more than any other group but recognizing that it can be a spectrum of disease in across all the ages, but I, I think you start thinking about it in those older men, uh, particularly people that have a history of a hematodermic uh, neoplasm, or I'm sorry, hematologic neoplasm or uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, and, and then it can present in a lot of different ways in the skin. There are singular lesions that can uh, be reminiscent of how anaplastic large cell lymphoma looks. Uh, there can be rashes. Uh, that are difficult to figure out and cryptogenic and then only comes to light later on. I've seen many people think that leukemia cutis resembles uh, some BPDCN cases for sure, um, but it can be pretty protean in its in its presentation. So you do want to keep a, an open mind and cast a broad net. That's one thing I work on with our residents is I, I like to cast a broad net initially and make sure that I don't try to focus in on only one or two diseases because this can look like a lot of different things. So it, it's going to look like something that you're thinking, hey, I need a biopsy or or can it just slip right by you because it, it really doesn't look like much? It, it, you know, it's a vascular uh, uh, disease. It's a hematologic disease. So does it have that vascular appearance to it regardless of what it's presenting like? Are you thinking vascular in your mind? Yeah, I think 80 to 90% of cases present in the skin. And, and very often it does have um, erythematous is sort of violaceous papules, plaques, sometimes even tumors. I think lesions up to 10 centimeters uh, have been described. So uh, again, you're looking at a wide variety of presentations, but I think by and large, you're correct in that, you, you know, it has often that bluish, uh, purplish, violaceous-like color that lymphoid malignancies often do in the skin. But of course, we have to be very, very cognizant. I, I have to remind myself this all the time, uh, being in a family that has different shades of skin. Uh, you, you know, it can look different in different um, skin types. So, uh, but I think by and large, you're correct. I think it looks like a, 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 a violaceous erythematous uh, condition that we would generally associate with hematologic malignancies by and large. So 
for myself and even maybe some of the dermatology physician assistants and nurse practitioners that are in the practice that 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 may be performing the biopsy, right? I I would imagine there needs to be some reasonable size and depth to the biopsy. If the biopsy is too superficial, if you're thinking, oh, let me take a little shave off the surface or whatever, that would not be the right way to go about it. I would, you know, so what, and do I have to tell the pathologist, hey, think about BPDCN, or are they going to be able to say, hey, I need to run a panel of tests. Are they, are they going to be aware of it, or do I have to make that suggestion? Well, I, I think the answer is yes. So, so, uh, but before you 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 uh, jump on me, I, I think you're right in both regards. I think it's a good idea to take a representative biopsy. I think you know, as I've, I've said in in presentations I've done, even for the uh, PA uh, NP meeting that you hosted in Phoenix just a little while, short while ago. You know, biopsies are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and and at some point, you know, a way to remember things is you know, tissue is the issue and cancer is the answer. So if your biopsy is too small, there's not going to be enough representative tissue to make a good diagnosis. So I think you're right. You want a kind of meaty biopsy if you're trying to go after a lymphoproliferative disorder. You also have to be very careful about lymphoproliferative disorders and that they're very susceptible to crush artifacts. So uh, that that's where you want to be gentle with the specimen as you try to get that punch biopsy out of the hole, as it were, or anything like that. And, and then I think it's always good to communicate information to, to the uh, dermatopathologist so that they can refine their ideas. It's, it's very, very hard for a dermatopathologist just approach a slide with almost no information. If you say rule out lesion or rule out nub or something like that, they're approaching the slide with everything in the differential diagnosis. And I think that's where things get missed. And I think if you can refine things and say, you know, uh, first off, they'll know the age of the patient. They'll probably know the sex of the patient. But if you know information like the patient has a history of myelodysplasia or a hemato, uh, hematologic malignancy, those are important ideas to convey to help prompt those kinds of thoughts from the dermatopathologist and get them, you know, she, he or she focusing on the differential diagnosis that might include BPDCN. So when I'm looking at the report and I'm seeing, you know, the the H&E description, but the dermatopathologist is, is often going to do some other stains and some other tests, right? My understanding would be B BPDCN, as you say, it's it's, it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful for um, sure. It it sure is that there are some shared markers with some other uh, malignancies like leukemia acutis and acute myeloid leukemia, and you know the list can go on and on. And there are some that really differentiate BPDCN. So should I be looking at the report and say, oh, I want to make sure they did certain markers? Yeah, I, I think so. One thing I've tried to promote in some of the talks I've given for you and other people is, you know, you're a consumer of dermatopathology services, but the dermatopathologist is working for you and you want to make sure that they're really, uh, you know, taking the job seriously and doing what you want. You're a, you're their client. And and I think if you look down at the report and you see some immunostains are performed, you, you don't even need to be an expert in all those immunostains. That's the dermatopathologist job, but at least, you know, oh, they're, they're really taking this seriously. They're really trying to cone in on some ideas here. They're trying to eliminate some things, include some things. And there are some markers for BPDCN that are, are important. As you mentioned, 
there, there are some things that overlap with other entities and there are some things that are rather unique. Um, but the thing they teach people is this CD one, two, three, uh, four, five, six. Uh, so one, two, three, four, five, six. And it turns out that CD one twenty three is a, uh, plasma cytoid plasma cell marker. So that's positive in BPDCN and then CD four, uh, is the four of the one, two, three, four, five, six. And that's important too, but that is a ubiquitous marker, right? CD4 is on CD4 positive T cells as well. And then CD56, we classically think of that as an NK cell marker, um, but it is positive in BPDCN as well. And so the, the classic remembrance is CD123456. And if you look down at the report and you see they've done CD123, CD4, CD56, you can tell that they're working on this idea that it might be BPDCN and uh, that might be something that was telling. You might even want to, uh, you know, convey more information if you see that they're working on that angle and you knew that the patient had a lymphoproliferative disease already, but you didn't convey that information. That might be the time for that good communication that I encourage between the dermatopathologist and the clinician trying to refine those things because we're not working in a vacuum. And when we start working in a vacuum, the dermatopathologist is only doing dermatopathology things. The clinician is only doing clinician things. Then that leaves opportunity for error. But when there's that good integration and that good communication between the dermatopathologist and the clinician, then I think good things happen. Okay. We're going to take a pause, uh, Whitney, for a moment and get a word from our sponsor, and I'll be back to you shortly. This educational podcast is sponsored by Stemline Therapeutics, a Menorini Group company. For more information on BPDCN, please visit bpdcninfo.com or get the latest updates on Twitter at bpdcninfo. So Whitney, I like to I like to think of myself as a reasonably sharp clinical dermatologist. So I'm thinking that this patient has something going on. It's not one of those masquerading presentations where I'm surprised that it's something, you know, so, so ominous when I finally get, get the answer. And so if I send the patient to, let's say, get a CBC while I'm waiting for this biopsy report, would I expect to see some abnormalities on the CBC? The bone marrow is involved, I believe, somewhere around 40 to 50% of the time. So you might see some abnormalities. Uh, as I mentioned, they might already have known MDS, myelodysplastic syndrome, or something like that. So in which case, you know, they might just continue this odd pattern of, uh, of blood counts that they already are known to have. Um, but really, the diagnosis rests on either the histopathologic examination of the skin or the bone marrow. And that's where the biopsy is important. Uh, and that histopathologic examination with the immunohistochemical markers I already mentioned, but your dermatopathologist, just to go a little beyond what the average dermatologist would need to know, they might do other markers like uh, TCL1 or CD43 or uh, CD33, CD68, just to try to refine the ideas and make sure that it's not uh, an acute myeloid leukemia presenting as leukemia acutis or something like that. And, and that's really their domain or, or my domain uh, more than it is a clinician's domain. But I, I do think it's important to get that tissue. And, and dermatology is, is wonderful and that biopsies are easy to do, much easier than a bone marrow biopsy. So I, I think it is important to get that tissue and get that biopsy done. If they are not able to make the diagnosis off your initial biopsy, if they're only able to suggest the diagnosis, then they might recommend a larger or deeper or more comprehensive biopsy or biopsies, uh, but I do think tissue is important in that regard. 
So I was raised by a father who repeatedly said to me over and over again, which probably explains my behavior as an adult, if you don't have time to do it right, you're not going to likely have time to do it over. Right. So, you know, so let's think about the initial biopsy because that, that's what's really important because time is of essence here, you know, and I would think that the longer it takes to get to this diagnosis, you know, the more likely the patient's at danger of the disease progressing beyond when it can be adequately treated. So is it like a four millimeter punch biopsy? I know it's hard to give people an absolute minimum, but, you know, how much tissue do you need? Yeah, no, that's, that's, it's true. It's, it's um, hard to give a, 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 a singular answer for all situations, but um, a, a very a dermatopathologist I, I very much admire once said, if he had only three wishes, one of the wishes would be to gather up all the two millimeter punch biopsies in the whole world and destroy them. Uh, so, so, you know, we're certainly not looking at a two millimeter biopsy or anything like that. Uh, we want enough tissue to do you know, a, a bunch of tests, a bunch of immunostains on. So I don't do a lot of biopsies smaller than three millimeters. And I'm a clinician, been a clinician for 20 years. So I, I don't do a lot of three millimeter or smaller biopsies. I, I tend to do four millimeter or larger, uh, depending upon the situation. And if I do a shave, I tend to do a saucerization. And that stems from your father's wise advice that, you know, if, if you're going to do a biopsy, make it a biopsy that matters. Uh, and um, I don't do a lot of really tiny, tiny biopsies because I see the end result of those tiny biopsies and it's it's difficulty in rendering a diagnosis. So I, I do think you want to, um, you know, if this is a sick person that you're concerned about and a perplexing rash that you can't figure out, which is the case more often than not in BPDCN, I think you want to do a biopsy that's meaningful, probably a four motor punch or larger or a deep saucerization or or some type of substantial biopsy. So so I would imagine in this situation it would be best to take that biopsy. Now let's think about it what part of the lesion do we want to get the biopsy? I would think you'd want to go to the medius part, the center of the lesion. You don't care about some perilesional skin or some edge of normal skin. Am I correct in my thinking there? I think in this condition, you know, there are different situations, but I think in this condition, you are correct. I, I, I think you want to get, um, you know, the meat of the matter, the heart of the matter. And I don't think this is a situation where you're trying so much to overlap onto normal skin like you are with an autoimmune blistering condition or something of that nature. I think you do want to try to get the meat and bones of the issue and get to the bottom of it. Uh, but again, it can present in a, a variety of ways, ranging from bruise-like macular, near macular lesions to a singular large nodule, 10 centimeters across has been described. Uh, so, so it can present in a lot of different ways. Uh, and, and so you'll want to be prepared to alter your methods just a little bit. But I think in general, you know, a formal puncher or bigger, a saucerization or bigger, trying to capture really the heart of the lesion, the, the, the main portion. Yeah, I, I get concerned about saucerization because I'm not exactly sure that everybody defines it the same way. To me, if a punch, you know you're going to get down into subcutaneous fat if you do it right. It, it sound, sounds to me like, you know, if you have to do a saucerization, you're basically doing a divot biopsy, uh, you know, in order a to nine get iron, tissue. Yeah, yeah, nine yeah. iron biopsy. Yeah, for sure. Saucerization means different things to different people. When I, I say the word saucerization, I'm talking, you know, nearly the depth of a punch biopsy, but more uh, of a curved nature. But I, I do agree with you. Some people's saucerization is my shallow shave. So it is a, a slippery slope. 
And I appreciate the, all those concerns. You know, I, I really, truly do. I was showing, I was sharing a case at the AOCD meeting just the other day. I think you were there. Uh, and I was sharing a case showing how wrong you could go with a thin biopsy in certain situations. So I, I do understand that you can't wound these people. You can't leave them with scars or you, you know, uh, you, you hear all complaints in that manner if you do. But I, I do think in this situation, if you're that perplexed about the rash, it's been to other people, doesn't seem to be heading the right direction. The patient seems fairly ill or has maybe comorbidities. Uh, and in general, a 60-year-old plus male, which is where most of these cases occur, might in general, I hate to speak in, in uh, you know, ageist ways or anything, but might not be that much uh, of a concern about a larger biopsy on his back as maybe say the face of a younger person. So uh, just in general, in general terms, not trying to be ageist. Uh, you're talking about a male in their 60s. You're, th you're talking about me, Whitney. You know, you wouldn't <laughs> want anything to happen to this beautiful face, would you? But, so, no, sir. <laughs> so what about the idea of a single biopsy versus multiple biopsies? Like, in, I think about what we... We called it mycosis fungoides when I was a resident. Now it's cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. The thought that at certain time points, it's harder to diagnose histologically. So getting a few biopsies may increase your diagnostic capability. What about in this disease state? I don't know that that's been published so much, but I think we can talk about it anecdotally as two experienced uh, clinicians and, and dermatopathologists. I, I think we can say, you know, multiple biopsies always increase the chance of, of, of a, an accurate diagnosis. And mycosis fungoides is a great example of that. While it's not quite on target with our topic, it is a great example of a disease that's hard to make or a diagnosis that's hard to make. And it's um, a situation where multiple biopsies seem to and this is evidence-based medicine team to improve the odds of making the diagnosis. So I, I think the same thing would probably hold true in this other type of hematologic malignancy as well. I think that's that's wise advice. If you, if the patient doesn't care, uh, there are multiple lesions. Increasing the number of samplings isn't necessarily going to do anything bad. It's only going to, you know, from my perspective, only going to increase the odds of you getting an accurate diagnosis. So now I get the report back. I'm like, wow, this is B BPDCN. You have the right markers. You have an absence of other markers that could overlap with other diseases. The, the, the biopsy and all the, the, all the stains tell us what it is. Now, as a dermatologist, I'm not going to treat that patient. Where, who do I need to get that patient to? Yeah, so so that that's a very good point. I think you're probably going to get one of two diagnoses right. If your laboratory is very very comprehensive, like a university lab, like I work at, and they have a very broad panel of immunostains, and they can do all those secondary markers that we haven't really even discussed in this because it's not really a dramatic pathology discussion, but they can do TCL1, they can do CD43, all those other things, and, and they're feeling very confident that you're going to get a line diagnosis right. BPDCN. If you if you are at a lab that has a more limited repertoire of immunostains and maybe a little bit more lesser experience or a little bit lesser experience on the on the part of the dermatopathologist, you might get consistent with BPDCN or suggestive of. But I, I think in either case, the next step is referral on to a hematologist oncologist, uh, and and depending upon the strength of that initial examination, they may ask for the tissue to be examined 
by a hematopathologist, which is a specially trained person, a lot like a dermatopathologist, or they may accept the diagnosis as is if all the appropriate stains have been done. But they're the people that are going to go on and do the bone marrow biopsies, the imaging, all those kinds of things, and come to the final diagnosis and the treatment plan, which often involves a, you know, uh, either a bridging medication or ultimately stem cell transplant. So my understanding is if, if this diagnosis is made expeditiously and the patient is moved into the right hands, um, transferred into the right hands, um, we could have a significant impact on improving the quality of their life because we have a more targeted treatments than we, than we had in the past. So that, that, this has been very enlightening and I feel very good about it. I feel very good about understanding what my responsibilities would be as the dermatologist in the front lines that could actually be pivotal in making this diagnosis. But I have one more question for you. Uh-huh. In all your years, you're looking at a lot of, a lot of, a lot of different special stains. What is the prettiest special stain the most like you you could actually take a picture of it and print it out high resolution and hang it in, in your wall because you're looking at that that slide and this is beautiful right sure yeah no that's a good question uh you, you know probably the thing i like doing most in our laboratory is dual stains uh where you where you do key 67 and mart or you do d240 and mart uh, and and probably my favorite stain is something like that, a D240 and MART combination stain. Now, D240 is a stain that marks lymphatics and MART, obviously, also known as Milan A, uh, marks melanocytes. And we, we have some beautiful pictures of, you know, lymphatics containing uh, melanocytes, and they shouldn't because it's melanoma. And, and I think that's an interesting picture, and I have some beautiful pictures of that because I think you're, li- you're looking at a killer. You're, you're looking at a killer right there. You're looking at cells inside lymphatics where they shouldn't be, probably on their way uh, to the rest of the body. So it's it's like uh, looking at a picture of Jeffrey Dahmer or something like that. You're looking at a killer. And so I, I think that sometimes if I, if I had one picture to take and put on my wall, it'd be something like that. Because the, as you mentioned, this is you know something that dermatologists can impact. We can stop this killer. And if you can catch this BPDCN early and get them to the appropriate care, they might have a chance of beating this thing. And the same thing with melanoma. If you can intervene on melanoma early before those cells get into lymphatics, uh, then you have a, a great chance of making a positive impact in your world and improving people's lives. And when you see a picture of a lymphatic with melanocytes in it, you know uh, that, that there's a higher goal to aspire to, to prevent that picture uh, from being replicated, prevent other but pictures. But visually, like, is this a pretty picture? It is. I mean, it is because the, the uh, D240 is brown colored uh, and it marks this this tubular lymphatic structure. And, and then the uh, melanocytes are bright red and, and the tissue in the background is kind of a blue. I'll have to show you one. Maybe you can share it on your website or something like that. Well, th- that that's uh, it's hard to imagine looking at a killer, but having it being beautiful. But that's like a black widow spider. It's visually a beautiful <laughs> spider, but you don't want to go anywhere near it. Whitney, it's been great talking to you today. And thanks so much for helping me understand this disease so much better. Of course. I think it's an important thing to consider and be aware of and make a positive impact on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 
Thanks for joining us. This educational podcast is sponsored by Stemline Therapeutics, a Menorini Group company. For more information on BPDCN, please visit bpdcninfo.com or get the latest updates on Twitter at BPDCNinfo.